Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. And notice that the Spirit of God came upon Saul. This equipping from God was not the fact that Saul was necessarily born again, but the Spirit of God came upon those in the Old Testament at different times to accomplish different means. But the Spirit of God did come upon Saul at different times to empower him for this kingly rule, this kingly role that he was going to have. Welcome to our Bible study today on Truth in Christ Radio. Saul finally received the word of the attack on Jabesh by the men of that city. It was time for Saul to act, and God was with him. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, but it didn't come to entertain him or to thrill him. It came to equip him for service so that he could do something for the Lord. This is always God's plan. He doesn't want us to seek the Holy Spirit selfishly, but to be empowered and used by Him to touch others. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's message. Remember in Judges chapter 11, and you may be wondering, what is Judges chapter 11? Write that down in the margin of your Bible, because this is when Jephthah, if you recall, who was a Gileadite, who was one of these men born near Jabesh Gilead on that side of the uh, Jordan River on the east side, He lived in a town, and he had brothers, and his father had had an illicit relationship with a a prostitute, and thus Jephthah was born. And so he was an illegitimate son. His other brothers didn't look at him. Uh, They looked at him with disdain. But Jephthah had one thing going for him, and that is he had a band of marauders. He had a big band of men, and they would go out um, and, and do raids and things of that nature. And so now, when the Ammonites are coming... Uh, or, or, I'm sorry, when the um, Ammon comes against the same area that we're talking about tonight, Jabesh, or you know, that area in Gilead, they, they come to Jephthah and they said, Hey, will you help us out? And he's like, You mean you've been castigating me and casting me off from society because I'm an illegitimate son? And now because I got a band of guys who know how to use knives and spears and everything, now you want my help? And they said, Yes. And he says, will you make me a king if I deliver you in your battle? And they said, that finally they acquiesced. Yes, we'll do that. So he does. Jephthah and the men come, and they really do a number on the Ammonites and just really take care of business. And so we can see in this battle that Jephthah had against the Ammonites was at least 150 years prior to what we're looking at 
historically tonight in chapter 11. About 150 years. So 150 years have passed by, and, and, and the animosity is still there. It's not, very, it's not uncommon to see this kind of thing, is it, between nations, between people. 150 years go by, and even the English and the French have a problem. You know, or even the English and Americans sometimes can have problems. You know, certain nationalities just don't get along. But notice in verse 3 with me, it says, Then the elders of Jabesh said to Nahash, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. We will come out to you. This sounds weird to us, and it actually did to me as well. But one thing we have to remember is that ancient warfare was very brutal. Ancient, ancient warfare was brutal, but yet there were rules of engagement. There was an etiquette about battle back then. There was an honor in battle. And, and so these men from, Jab, or from Nahash and the Ammonites, you know, the, um, the, the elders of Jabesh said to them, you know, hold off and we'll see if we can get help. And these Ammonites were so confident that they wouldn't, number one, be able to get help. And even if they were able to muster a handful, they would still be outnumbered by the Ammonites and be destroyed. And so the uh, Ammonites said, fine, we'll give you seven days, you know. Feeling in their heart, there's no way they're going to get this done because the whole nation is in such disarray, morally, in decline. And so the messengers, verse 4, they came to Gabeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people uh, uh, lifted up their voice and they wept. And you might ask yourself, why are they weeping? I mean, they're from a tribe on the other side of the Jordan. Why are they weeping? Why, why is Benjamin weeping for what happened over there? The lives of the people of Gibeah of Benjamin and those of Jabesh-Gilead from the tribe of Gad, their lives, their history is intertwined. And you may be asking yourself, what do you mean? Well... It's significant because it is very possible that Saul, all the men of Gibeah, uh, and in fact, all of Benjamin's matriarchs, their mothers, their grandmothers, maybe, maybe even their great-grandmothers, were from Jabesh-Gilead. So Saul's own mother or grandmother, or perhaps her, even his great-grandmother, came from Jabesh-Gilead. If you remember, and again, I think this is interesting to look at, in Judges chapter 19, I want to summarize for you really quickly. It won't take that long. The three chapters in Judges 9 through 21. And if you remember in Judges chapter 19, there was a Levite who lived in Ephraim. And he uh, came down. His, he had a, a concubine who, was, who played the harlot on him. And she went back uh, home to Bethlehem from Ephraim. She went down south to Bethlehem. Finally, the Levite comes after her and finds her at her father's home where she used to live. And so he's talking with his father. He wants to bring his concubine back home with him. And remember, this guy's a Levite. And so finally, after several days of the father encouraging him to stay, just bestowing upon him great hospitality, stay another day, stay another day, stay another day. Finally, he stays another day, the fifth day, I think it is, and he's like, you know what, I'm not going to stay another night. It's already approaching darkness, and we, we're going to go. We're going to go. So that's what he does. Him and his concubine and his servant, they take off. They go, south, they go north now, and as they're leaving Bethlehem, Jerusalem, or Jabus at the time, was just a, little, just a few miles miles north. And so they go up to Jabus, who was occupied by the Jebusites at that time. 
and the servant says, let's go into Jabez, and, and uh, the Levite says, no, let's go a little bit further. They go up a little further, and finally it's getting dark. They pull into Gabeah. And while they're in Gabeah, a really nice man gives them lodging. And during that night, just like in Genesis 19, as this man and his servant and his concubine are in this house of this very kind man from Gabeah in Benjamin, some of the men of Belial, literally men of the devil, um, these men were homosexual men. They come pounding on the door, just like we see in Genesis 19. They demand to know him intimately. They, they, they want to take advantage sexually of the man, of the Levite. And so, finally, what happens is they give to the mob, pounding on the door, they give them the, the concubine who had been playing the harlot. They give them to her, to this mob, and they abuse her all night. In the morning, they wake up. She's laying there dead at the threshold of the door. The Levite takes the woman and he puts her on his donkey. He travels further north to his place there in Ephraim. And he's so incensed about what happened to Gabeah, he does a horrible thing. It tells us that he takes out a knife and he cuts her into 12 pieces. This is like, the most, this is like uh, NCIS, isn't it? And he sends a piece of her to each of the 12 tribes. And then all Israel are so incensed, they gather at Mizpah and they make an oath at that time when they all gather together because they all got a piece of this poor woman. They gather at Mizpah, they make an oath that they would not give their daughters to wife of those of Benjamin. So they make an oath. We're not going to give any of our sons, any of our daughters, to the tribe of Benjamin. So Israel goes against Gabeah. The whole, the whole country goes against Gabeah, this town in Benjamin. And they go there and they say, give up the men in Gabeah who did this crime. And of course, Benjamin, they are just like, no way, we're not giving up anything. They could have just handed over the couple of men or the small mob and this whole thing would have been averted. Do you understand? This whole battle would have been averted if, they, if Benjamin had done the right thing. If they would have just handed over the guilty party, probably 12 or who knows how many would have died and it would have spared all the bloodshed that you're going to read about later. And so the men of Benjamin didn't do it. Instead, they went to war with all of Israel. And at first, Benjamin, believe it or not, is actually overcoming this, the whole nation, right? They're, they're actually overcoming. So they go out and battle three different times. Finally, on the third attempt, the Israelites finally have victory over the, over the Benjamites. And so when they realized, and they, and they slaughtered them, and so the, the children of Israel defeated them, so much so that only 600 men of Benjamin survived, and they had no wives, because everybody was dead. Only 600 men survived. That's all that was left of the tribe of Benjamin, was 600 men. So when they realized, all of Israel, that a tribe of Israel might be vanquished, they asked, who did not come with them to battle? And the men of Jabesh-Gilead from the tribe of Gad did not come. And so it was this men of Jabesh-Gilead... Now, because of their anger, they're like, all right, somebody's going to pay for this. Sounds like, a real, sounds like a typical guy thing to do. Who didn't come with us to the battle? Jabesh Gilead. Well, let's go after him and kill them, right? And so they go. They go. And the men of Jabesh Gilead from the tribe of Gad did not come, so they destroyed all the men and the women and the children of Jabesh Gilead, spared only 400 women who were virgins. And remember... So now they give those 400 virgins to 400 of the 600 men from Jabesh. So now you've got 200 men from Benjamin who don't have wives. And so they concoct this plan 
to steal wives because they've made a covenant, an oath, to not give their wives to any of these men. They make, a, they make up this plan where they said, um, well, listen, n- n- nobody is going to give you wives, but what you can do is go up to, uh, go up to um, what was it, um, go up north and uh, to Ephraim, and they are going to have feasts, and the women will come out of the towns, and when they do come out of the towns, catch them and take them. So they're going to go catch wives. So the 200 men who still have, don't have wives... They go and they fetch, they steal them, they kidnap them, and they become their wives. And evidently they're okay with this. And it also gets them out of the oath because they didn't give them to them because they were stolen from them. Right? And so, so this is the connection that we have. And so really from this point onward in Judges 19 through 21, you see how the lives of the Benjamites and those of Jabesh Gilead, how their lives were intertwined because the, the, the mothers, those 400 virgins... And, and some from Ephraim, 200 from Ephraim, they all came into uh, Benjamin, and they had sons and, and their sons and daughters. And it's very possible that Saul's mother even probably was more than likely from Jabesh Gilead or Ephraim. And so their, their, their worlds collided, and they had a, uh, a meaningful relationship with them. So it was very common for them to be upset about what had happened because they have history. So in verse 5, it says, Now there was Saul... Uh, coming from the herd, from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they said, and they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. And then the Spirit of God came upon Saul, and he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. And notice that the Spirit of God came upon Saul. This equipping from God was not the fact that Saul was necessarily born again, but the Spirit of God came upon those in the Old Testament at different times to accomplish different means. But the Spirit of God did come upon Saul at different times to empower him for this kingly rule, this kingly role that he was going to have. And so, verse 7, he took a yoke of oxen, he cut them in pieces, sound familiar? And, and, and sent them, just like the... They did in, uh, in Judges 19 and 21. They sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so shall it be done to this oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And although some have said that this is an, an act of leadership on Saul's behalf, I really wonder if it really was. I mean, it could be. But I think Saul could have probably done some, some things differently. He probably could have just sent a letter to all the tribes. But why does he got to threaten them and, and, say, and, and, and take a piece of the oxen and send it to them like happened with the, with the, with, 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 um, the Levites sending the 12 pieces? You know, Was it really necessary to, to do that, threaten them? Does that sound like the Spirit of God to you, to manipulate the people to come to battle for him by sending pieces? And if, if, if you don't do this, we're going to do the same thing to you. I, that, I don't know. I don't, that doesn't ring true to me. So I, I think, in my own thoughts, and I may be wrong, but I think Saul, this was a part of his flesh that probably wasn't of God at all. Because I don't believe that threatening and manipulation was of the Lord. In fact, what does it say in James? The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Again, he could have sent a letter and probably gotten just as many people to come to the, the thing with him. 
But Saul did a similar thing to muster an army against the Ammonites that the Levite in Judges 19 did that ultimately incited judgment upon the tribes of Benjamin. So a very similar tactic. So let's look at verse 8. And it says, When he numbered them, and Bezek, the children of Israel, were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So 330,000 men. Now one thing, as we look at this, um, if you were to look at the Septuagint version of the Bible, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, one of the things you're going to find in, in the Old Testament is sometimes there's problems with numbers, especially when uh, there's, there's copies involved. The original scriptures were flawless, but when, when copies were made from them, it was, it's very easy when you're making a number in Hebrew, from what I understand, just a little small little mark can mean a difference between 50 and 500. And so it's very easy for numbers to be inaccurately done. So when you run across numbers in the Bible and you compare them like in Chronicles and Samuel or Kings and you start looking at different numbers like oh, they don't really match up, understand that that's probably what's going on. There's, I've actually got a book, it's called The Mysterious Numbers of the, of the Kings of Judah and that Edwin Thiel had put together. It's a really fantastic book, but it's not something you'd probably want to look at unless you're really curious. But just suffice it to say that there can be small little errors and copyists, and so different numbers, because the Septuagint records a higher number. Not a big deal. It's just something in passing to be mindful of. So notice in verse 9, And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by this time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were naturally very glad, because now they've got an army they were very small, but now they know the men of Benjamin from Gabeah are going to come, and they're going to help them. Therefore the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Tomorrow we will go out to you, and you may do with what us whatever seems good to you. And so the men of Nahash, of Ammon, they're thinking, these guys are done. We're going to take out their eyes, and they're going to be a, a reproach. And so this gave the Ammonites a, a false sense of security. And you can understand the, the mental warfare here. Um, you know, when you've got something up your sleeve that your enemy doesn't know, it gives them a false sense of security. So these guys are thinking, this is going to be an easy battle. These guys are going to come marching out. We're going to have our way with them. But they're going to be surprised because an army was on its way, unbeknownst to them. And you know, for us, as we look at this tonight, I want to encourage you tonight that help is on the way. Help is on the way. We see this in Revelation. We'll see it on Sunday when we look at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Believe me, help is on the way. Do you know that? Help is on the way. It's none other than Jesus Christ. He is the greatest help. He is the helper. What does the, the Bible say? He's the paraclete. He's the helper, the comforter. But there is help coming on the way, folks. Not only for just us, but for the whole entire world, for those who believe in Jesus. Help is on the way. He's coming very soon. He's coming very soon. Don't get discouraged. Your king is on his way. Can I get a smile? Everybody smile. Yeah, even a clap is good. You know, you can even dance in the halls. You know, Jesus is on his way. He is our help. 
And so it was, verse 11, on the next day that Saul put the men in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp, notice, underline this, in the morning watch and underline three companies. That'll make sense to you in just a minute. But underline three companies, underline in the morning watch. And what happened? They killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. So as the sun is not even at noon yet, they are having a great victory over their enemy. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were together. And see, this is, um, is interesting because this was Saul's first battle as king. And I had you underline those things about it being in three companies and also in the morning watch. If you underline those, put in the margin of your Bible, Judges chapter 7. Because when you look at Judges chapter 7, again, just quickly, what happened there? You remember when Gideon went out against the Midianites and the Amalekites. Remember, he had a big army, and God says, you got too many, too many guys. I'm going to give you something to do to whittle down the size, and and I'll take the real faithful, faithful, faithful warriors with you into battle. And it came down, there was only like 300 guys after this test that God had devised. So here's Gideon with 300 men going up against several thousands of men. And you remember what they did. Gideon divided the hundred or the three hundred into three groups, three groups of a hundred with the pitchers and the, and the torches. Remember that inside the lanterns and, the, and they'd smash the lantern and the light would show and then they'd give a shout and, and this really confused the enemy. It was psychological warfare. And notice that Saul in his very first battle, he pulls the same thing. He catches the enemy off guard. He goes in three companies. He does it in the middle of the night. They say the morning watch is somewhere between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. So this is the darkest part of the night. And these guys are on the march, unbeknownst to the Ammonites who are thinking, boy, when the sun comes up, this is going to be an easy victory. And if they could only see in the distance, if the sun was up, they could probably see the dust rising as the army was approaching, right? Can you picture it in your head? I I love to do that as I read the Bible. I actually picture it in my mind, and it sticks there, and it's such a wonderful thing. So verse 12, it says, So the people... Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And so it's interesting. After they have this great battle against the Ammonites, they're victorious. It is like a, it's like a revival in the, in the nation of Israel. They got their first king, their first battle. There is a big celebration. You understand what that's like? Maybe you've had a great victory. Something really special in your life has happened. And everything is just like, wow, it's just jubilance. Mass jubilance. Everyone is excited. And that's the way they were. They were on a high with King Saul and this victory. And they foolishly now, they they want to kill the men who originally didn't want anything to do with Saul. Do you remember what happened when Saul was anointed king by the people? It tells us just in the chapter before in verse 25 in chapter 10. What did it say? It says that Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty, explaining what your king, which is a bad thing for you guys. You shouldn't be asking for a king. God was your king what's the matter with you what's the matter with your head what is wrong with you <laughs> and so samuel explains to them the behavior of royalty he wrote it in a book laid it before the lord and samuel went away and the people went away every man to his house and saul also went home to Gibeah. and valiant men notice went with saul whose hearts god had touched but notice verse 27 of first samuel 10 but some rebels said how can this man save us And so they despised him, and they brought him no presents. 
No gifts that day. But he held his peace, Saul did. These are the men that now they want blood lust. Who are those men? You know, because they're all pumped up with excitement. We got this great king, this great battle. Where are those guys that said Saul was nothing? Bring them here and we're going to cut their heads off. Can you see it? And their zeal, they're just like, they're not done with blood yet. They, they want to finish. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.